Eastern religions. What do they teach? And why have they become so popular in the West? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucharin. Pat Zucharin is an author, speaker, and Christian apologist who speaks all over the world presenting the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, he'll evaluate Eastern religions. You'll hear Pat today before a live audience at a conference in Hawaii on many topics, including Mormonism, Islam, and the Word of Faith movement. Go to evidenceandanswers.org for all of these resources and a lot more. So be sure and check out the host of resources at evidenceandanswers.org. Let's go now to Pat Zucharin before a live audience for part two of Eastern Religions. Classical Buddhism, the Buddhist monks, what are they in classical Buddhism? They take the vow of poverty and the vow of celibacy. They don't get married. They detach from everything in this world and live a life of solitude and meditation. Detach from everything in this world. Okay? And so that was uh, uh, Yoda's advice to the young Jedi master there. Classic pantheism, you know, classic lesson there in Buddhism. Next, there are numerous spiritual beings okay, who have delayed their union with the divine to help those of us in our spiritual journey. In Star Wars, it's what? Yoda, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, right, who delay their union with the Force to return and guide the young Jedis. In Japanese Buddhism or Pure Land Buddhism, you have the Amida Buddha, supposedly Buddha, before he entered Nirvana, turned around and saw the suffering of mankind and delayed his entrance into Nirvana and became the Amida Buddha, the Buddha of light and compassion, to aid those who call upon him uh, to entrance into the Pure Land. Right? In Hinduism, you've got all kinds of gods. Uh, there in that picture is Lord Krishna, uh, but there are numerous other manifestations of Brahma, you know, Vishnu, Shiva, Brahma, numerous, numerous gods in Hinduism who are here to aid us in our journey to break that reincarnation cycle and become one with the divine. And finally, since all is one, all religions lead to the one. There are many ways to God, many paths that lead to the one. So religious syncretism or pluralism, since all is one, all religions eventually lead to the one. That's why if you share with someone who is a new ager or someone who is a Buddhist and you share with them Jesus Christ, they say, great, I'll take Jesus too. Oh, great, Krishna, I'll take Krishna too. You know, they're very syncretistic or pluralistic. There was a deacon at a Baptist church out here in Pro City. And uh, he served in his church. And when he died, guess what kind of funeral he wanted? Buddhist. He wanted a Buddhist funeral. Religious syncretism. Okay, that always lead to the one. So, there's a brief overview of pantheism, of the Eastern religions. And as you can see, there are some major differences between Christianity and the Eastern religions. And one thing we learned, they both can't be right at the same time. Why? They teach contradictory Viewpoints. They both can't be right at the same time. One is true, the other must be false. Eastern religions teach that God is an impersonal force. Christianity teaches God is a personal being who created us in His image. Eastern religions teach that God and the universe and all is one. The Bible teaches that God is distinct from the universe. God created the universe, He controls the universe. But God is not dependent or not in, contained in the universe. 
Eastern religions teach us that man is basically good because man is basically divine in nature. Christianity teaches that God created us in His image, but we are sinful, fallen beings in need of a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. Salvation in the Eastern religions comes through individual effort, whether it's through meditation or in Buddhism, accepting the Four Noble Truths and following the Eightfold Path. And in the Eastern religions, they teach reincarnation. You have many lifetimes okay, to get it right, to finally break that cycle and attain oneness with the divine. The Bible teaches that we cannot do anything to earn our salvation. It's based on God's grace, okay, based on his gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ. And all we can do is receive the gift that he has given to us. There's nothing we can do to earn and work for our salvation. And the Bible does not teach reincarnation, it teaches resurrection. And you only get one shot, right? Hebrews 9, 27 is the point of each man and woman to die once, then comes the judgment. And there's no endless cycle of reincarnation. Your eternal destiny is determined at death's door. In the Eastern religions, there are mythical saviors or men who have attained enlightenment now who supposedly can help you on your journey to attain oneness with the divine. In Southern Buddhism, Buddhism in Southeast Asia, they're called the Arhats, right? Those priests who have attained enlightenment Okay? and can guide us on our journey. And if you pray to them, they can extend their good karma to you to help you in your journey to attain enlightenment or break that cycle of reincarnation and attain oneness with the divine. But these are imperfect human saviors. In Christianity, we don't serve a mythical savior. Jesus Christ was a real historical person. Okay? We have good evidence through the Gospels and the writings of the Apostles, that he was a real historical person who lived a sinless, miraculous life, who died and conquered sin and death and rose again. And he is not simply a man. He is the God-man. He is the divine Son of God and the only way to eternal life. Jesus taught in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Whereas the Eastern religions teach that always are valid ways to the divine. So as you can see on that chart there, they're not saying the same thing. They're saying contradictory things. Both cannot be right at the same time. Now, let me give you a practical approach. There are many, many ways to witness to friends and family who are in the Eastern religions. I mean, this is just one approach. And this is a more apologetic-oriented approach that I designed while in my doctoral course there at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Now, as we begin, there's some helpful guidelines. First, remember, treat each person as an individual. Each person may have various views regarding, you know, in answer to those eight questions that I presented. Some may be a little confused in what they believe. In fact, many who claim to be Buddhists that you may talk to may not really understand what they believe or the teachings. They just follow the traditions of their family. Second, learn to establish bridges. You know, people of the Eastern religions, to me, are some of my favorite to dialogue and share Christ with. Why? Well, we're both open to spiritual things. We both believe that death is not the end, that there's an immaterial essence that survives the death of the body. Okay? Learn to build bridges. And finally, determine your term, uh, define your terms very clearly. 
Hey, when you're talking about God, what's the pantheist thing? What's the new age thinking? You know, oh, the one, the force. When you say Christ, what's the new ager thinking? Oh, an enlightened being, one of many who were enlightened. So define your terms very clearly. Remember, when we begin to dialogue with someone who's not a Christian, okay, who's of a different religious system, where do we begin? Worldviews, okay? How do we identify someone's worldviews? Yeah, the eight what's. Simply ask them those eight questions, and you get a basic understanding of what they believe. Now, when it comes to the pantheists, remember, there's three basic worldviews, theism, naturalism, and pantheism. All three cannot be true at the same time. If one is true, the other two must be false. Why? We're teaching contradictory things. So if you can show that we live in a theistic universe, that a personal God exists who created the universe, then the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism are ultimately false, okay? and the philosophies and religions that are built upon them in the end are ultimately false. Okay? So we're going to very briefly learn how to show that we live in a theistic universe. And if we can show we live in a theistic universe, then the worldview of pantheism must be false. Well, how do we do that? Well, there's several, several proofs, several evidences that we live in a theistic universe, that the worldview of theism is true. This also works well for the atheist. First, we call the cosmological argument, or the argument from first cause. Very simple. It goes like this. Whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Simple, right? Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And whatever created the universe okay, is greater than the universe, the law of cause and effect. Right? Every cause has an effect. Every effect has a cause. No effect is greater than its cause. Whatever caused the universe is greater than the universe. The universe has a beginning. And that's important with a pantheist. Why? If God is the universe. The universe is what? Eternal. If you can show the universe has a beginning, the universe is not eternal. Can we show the universe has a beginning? Yes. Science now has shown okay, that the universe has a beginning. I don't have time to go into all the proofs, okay, but we, many call it the Big Bang. That the universe has a beginning. It's not eternal. The universe has a beginning. Here's what two of the greatest minds in science say about the Big Bang right now. Stephen Hawking, maybe the greatest physicist, cosmologist of our time, he writes this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Steven Weinberg, he's an atheist. He does not like Christians. I've heard him lecture several times, and man, he, he just puts down the Christians unashamedly in his lectures. But Steven Weinberg says this, he, he's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, maybe, maybe the greatest physicist of our time. He says this, in the beginning there was an explosion, not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously, everywhere filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. If the universe has a beginning, then it has a cause. What is that cause? And God is a great candidate here. Also, if the universe has a beginning, it cannot be eternal. And this alone puts pantheism in a whole lot of trouble. Next, the argument from design. Every design has a designer. The universe shows highly complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. For example, 
We live in a just right universe. Everything fell right into place to make life possible here upon this earth. Hey, the universe expands at just the right rate so we can have life in our universe. We're at the right location in our galaxy. You've got to be in what's called the habitable zone, and we are there. Our solar system, Jupiter, why don't we get bombarded by meteors and asteroids? Jupiter acts like a big magnet and absorbs meteors and asteroids that would otherwise strike the Earth. And Jupiter is not a solid ball, right? It's, it's a gas, it's like a sponge. So when those meteors come, it just sucks them in like a sponge. We're the just right distance from the sun. We rotate at just the right speed, a little bit slower. You know, things would fry and the other side would get too cold. And when the other side comes around, same thing would happen. I mean, everything shows that we live in a finely tuned universe to make life possible here upon this earth. Everything is pointing towards design. Carl Sagan, the atheist, said this, the brain, just the human body, the brain. The brain is a very big place in a very small space. The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine, more wonderful than any devised by humans. We haven't created a computer that can do what a human brain can do. And a human brain is just a four-pound guy. And we've yet to create a computer that can do what the human brain can do. It's like a machine. Even uh, Richard Dawkins, okay, the staunch atheist whose books are filled with uh, hate speech towards Christians. That's all I can say. He wrote the book, The God Delusion. He says this about the DNA code. The machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. He says the DNA code is computer-like. Throughout creation, whether you're going to study biology, chemistry, physics, astrophysics, we're seeing signs of intelligent design. Now, intelligent design points to what? An intelligent creator. Intelligence points to what? Personality. And whatever created this universe is not an impersonal force. And he's, he has intelligence. And that's a sign that we have a personal God here. Then third, the moral argument. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 illustrate this. Every law has a lawgiver. There is an absolute law. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. And we all abide by universal moral law codes. We all know whatever culture you're in, if I go up to a five-year-old child and beat the child to death for fun, for no reason at all, in every culture, hey, that's punishable by death. Where does that moral law code come from? Did you read an essay and learn that? No. And what's Romans chapter 2 say? It comes because we're created in the image of God. We're designed with a moral, you know, an embedded moral law code. A moral, ethical, rational being created this universe. Where there is intelligence, where there is morality, shows you there is intelligence. There is a person behind all this. And finally, here's the bonus one, the anthropological argument. Simply this, every effect not only has a cause, but one that is similar to that cause. Easy way to put this, like creates like. In other words, which one is the more reasonable conclusion? We are rational, thinking, moral beings. Which one's more rational? That a rational, moral being created us, or that an impersonal force created rational thinking moral beings. Which one is it? Nothing created rational beings. The void created us rational moral beings or that the one who created us created us in his image. Which one is the more reasonable conclusion? 
you put all that together and it points to the fact that we live in a theistic universe. So when I was sitting down with my Hindu friend and I asked him, what is the nature of God? What is the nature of the universe? You know, he said, well, God and the universe are one. The universe is eternal, on and on. And when we were done, I said, does the universe have a beginning? Okay, my Hindu friend there, he had three master's degrees, one of them in engineering. And he said, well, you know, science points that, yeah, we have a big bang. I said, if the universe has a beginning, it cannot be eternal. Now, throughout the universe, we see signs of intelligent design. If there's an intelligent designer, he's a personal being. And then there's a universal moral law code, which points to a moral lawgiver. All that shows that whoever created this universe, the universe has a beginning, can be eternal, and whoever created it is a personal being, not an impersonal force. Therefore, the worldview of pantheism cannot be true. So he sat there for a while, and if you get that far with a, a Buddhist or a pantheist, that's great. You can end the conversation there and say, hey, let's get together again, and let's talk some more about this. And when they come back next week, or even right there, they might just look at you and say, well, all right, how do you know you're right? You know, boom, there you go. You can say, well, let me, tell, let me tell you why. We came back the next week, okay, and I went through the proofs, and I said, therefore, you know, we live in a theistic universe. Therefore, the worldview of pantheism cannot be true. Therefore, ultimately, Hinduism and all the other Eastern religions must ultimately be false. Okay, and then he looked at me and said, well, okay, well, I want to know how you think you're right. And I said, oh, great. Thought you'd never ask. And the great thing to do next is to compare Christ to the other gods. Compare Christ to the Buddhas and the Brahmins and the other avatars who are out there. And you see a big, big difference. First of all, Christ was a historical person. And many of the avatars, the Amida Buddha, Lord Krishna, they're mythical gods or mythical beings. The Gospels are written well within the first century. They're good eyewitness accounts that give a very accurate historical account of Jesus Christ who lived a very miraculous, sinless life, who died and rose again. Amida Buddha, in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, he's, he or she is fiction. Krishna is fiction. Christ is a historical person who lived a very miraculous life. We've got great historical evidence for that. Uh, Jesus Christ claimed to be the divine Son of God, the one who created the universe. Okay? The holy men do not make those kinds of claims. Third, Jesus Christ confirmed his claims to be the divine Son of God through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Look at the holy men now. Okay? For example, the Dalai Lama. Does he perform supernatural miracles? No. Buddha did not. Muhammad did not. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi does not perform supernatural miracles. Only Christ performs supernatural miracles to confirm his claim to be the divine Son of God. Next, Jesus lived a sinless life. That cannot be said of Muhammad. That cannot be said of Shirley MacLaine. That cannot be said of the Arhats or the Brahmin priests. That cannot even be said of Buddha. According to the legend of Buddha, he had many previous lives. Hey, he had to go through the cycle of reincarnation until he finally attained enlightenment when he became the Buddha in that particular reincarnation. So they did not live a sinless life. Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life. And finally, Jesus is the only one who ever conquered sin and death. Hey, all holy men 
have died. None of them have conquered sin and death. None of them have ever been able to conquer the grave. Buddha died, right? His grave is in present-day Nepal. All New Age masters have died. Right? The Hindu holy men, they have all died. Only Christ alone died and conquered sin and death. So compare Christ amongst the other gods and you discover there's something very, very unique about him. He claimed to be the divine son of God and he's the only one who confirmed it through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. So if Jesus Christ is indeed the incarnate, the divine son of God, whatever Jesus taught about salvation is true and whatever contradicts his teaching must be false. Jesus taught that the Bible alone is the word of God Jesus taught that he is the only way to eternal life, John 14, 6. Jesus taught in resurrection, not in reincarnation, that is appointed to each man and woman to die once, then their eternal destiny will be determined. So whatever goes against the teachings of Christ must ultimately be false. Okay? The teachings of the Eastern religion contradict the teachings of Christ. Therefore, salvation that is taught in the Eastern religions must ultimately be false. And finally, this is the fun part, invite them into a special relationship. We are created for relationship with one another and with the one who created us. And God invites us into a very personal, special relationship with Him. The impersonal nature of God in pantheism is unsatisfying to meet the human need for worship and a relationship with their creator. And to say that your ultimate goal, such as in Buddhism, is extinction. That's very unsatisfying. Say your ultimate goal is to lose your personality and your being and become absorbed into the one. That's not a very satisfying thing to look forward to. Christianity offers a very unique message, okay? everlasting life okay? in the presence of the one who created you in a very special relationship now and forevermore, one that can never be lost. That's a very special relationship that's not present in the Eastern religion. So if you're talking to someone in Buddhism, there's a big void there. Okay? There's not a personal relationship. You can't have one with nirvana, right, with extinction. Okay? But if you express that Christianity is about having a very personal, special relationship with the one who created us, wow, that's something that's not there in Buddhism or in the other Eastern religions. You know, when I came to Christ, uh, growing up in, in the Buddhist tradition, and then I began, you know, when I got to the high school age, I began questioning, why am I here? Why, do, why am I studying? Why not just party all the time and just get a, you know, blue-collar job? And, you know, I mean, why should I study? Why, you know, why do I want to make money? Well, and uh, I began studying Buddhism, and eventually I rejected Buddhism and just became an atheist. And then I came to understand that, well, if I'm an atheist, my... Uh, future hope is extinction, you know, my life is essentially meaningless without hope or significance. And so I, I got quite discouraged and the Eastern religions didn't seem to offer me any kind of valid hope. And one day I was, uh, a friend tricked me, got me to church and I heard the message of the gospel for the first time in my life. You know, I was sleeping throughout the entire service and when I woke up, the pastor just recited two verses. That's all he did, two verses. Matthew chapter 11 verse 20 where Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I thought, wow, the God of the universe wants to have a personal relationship with me. 
So much so, he wants me to place my burdens on him, and, and he wants to give me rest. Oh, I've never heard that before. And then the uh, pastor quoted Matthew 28. And Jesus said, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And, and, and you know, I did a double take. I thought, wow, the God of the universe has promised to be in a committed relationship with me, good, bad, or ugly. Nothing will ever separate me from him. He's made that commitment to me. No one ever makes that kind of commitment. You know, the greatest commitment you'll make in our lifetime is what? Marriage. And the last sentence of your vows is what? Till death do us part. But God said, hey, never leave you, never forsake you. Be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. Never heard that in any of the Eastern religions I studied. We don't have that in atheism. This is a very special relationship here. There's something very special about Christianity. And that made me interested and moved me in a direction to study whether Christianity is true. And so when you're sharing with those in the Eastern religions, you know, hopefully you'll get to this part where you can invite them into a very special relationship with the God who created each one of us. We want to thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugrin. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat